There are some stories in the Bible that I believe do not get enough attention from us as adults because they've been relegated to children's church, junior church, the children's Sunday school class, and once that has happened, we don't really talk about them anymore. And one of those stories is Noah's Ark. And Noah's Ark was not written for, purpose, for, for children in its first writing. It was actually Moses that wrote it, and he wrote it to the Israelites after they had left Egypt and they were in the middle of the desert. And so today, I would like to look at Noah's Ark as it applies to the Israelites. I'm looking for my slide. Let's go there. So, when we read the story of Noah's Ark, we have a tendency to read it as we heard it preached to us or had it taught to us in children's church sometimes, if we grew up in the church. Or maybe we haven't really given it much attention. But this is actually quite a long story. It takes up four chapters. And as we read through it, there's some things that we can miss because maybe we haven't paid enough attention to it in the right way. And so today I would like to go quickly through the story of Noah's Ark and help organize it in a way that maybe makes it a little bit clearer for us to understand what it was that Moses was trying to teach the Israelites in writing this story to them. So open up your Bible with me in Genesis chapter 6, where the story begins. And uh, we're going to kind of skip over parts. I'm going to try to pull out the most important parts. And it's best if you have actually a paper Bible, because if you've got this on your iPhone, you're going to have a hard time flipping back and forth as fast as I go. But if you've brought your paper Bible, that will actually come in handy. I know there's some of you that have completely abandoned that, and that's fine, I understand. But today it actually will come in handy. So, in the beginning of the flood story, the first thing that comes to light is how wicked the people were. And we read this, uh, if you look at chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind who I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, and birds in the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And so it goes on to share a little bit about Noah, his sons. In verse 11, it repeats again, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. And so it makes very clear in this first opening section of this story on Noah's Ark that the problem was the corruption that was on the earth. And it was widespread to the point that God was ready to judge that wickedness, judge that corruption. But sometimes it may go unnoticed that this first part, the corruption of the earth, actually has a parallel at the very end of the story of Noah. And so if we flip over to the end of the story in chapter 9, after Noah and his family had gone through the flood and they came out and everything is getting started again, we see here that Noah, in verse 20, was a man of the soil, and he proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered, naked, inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father nakedness and told his two brothers outside. So we see that the corruption that we had at the very beginning of the story has now come back into the family of Noah. And here it is at the very end of the story, we have, again, this evil, this wickedness, this corruption 
now in Noah's family. So when we look at the story of Noah, what we have here is what is commonly referred to as bookends. They're parallels between the very beginning of a story and the very end of a story. And it's a device that's especially useful if you're passing on stories orally because it helps the person be able to understand where the story begins and where it ends because you've come full circle to come back to where you started from. And so here we have in this story a very clear theme at the beginning that has come back at the very end of the story, the corruption has returned. But if we go back to the beginning and we follow along, what is the second act we have after the corruption of the earth? And so let's go back to chapter 6 and let's go to the second act of our story. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And God gives instructions to Noah that he is to build an ark. And he gives the size and he tells him what kind of wood to make and how he's going to make it waterproof. But there's something that happens in verse 18 that we often just skip right past. We don't even give it much attention. It says, but I will establish my covenant with you. Wait a minute. Okay, so God's going to establish his covenant. But you know what? We're often so fixated on how big this ark is, how many cubits it is, and how many feet that is, and how we measure that, and is this ark going to be big enough to hold all the animals, and were there dinosaurs in those days, and if there were, all the dinosaurs going to fit in it, and is this feasible, or is this just a fictitious myth, and how is Noah with his three sons going to build this ark as huge as it was, what kind of tools were they going to use, how are they going to host up the wood, where were they going to get all this gopher wood, was the thing really going to flow, why in the world were they built, and we get fixated on a whole bunch of details, but we miss the point of the covenant. And if we put it in context, the ark that was built, how long was it useful for? A year? A little bit longer while it carried Noah through the flood? And then it was disposed of. But the covenant is everlasting. That goes on until today. And what happens is we sometimes get focused on the temporal and we forget what is permanent and everlasting. Now, this may be seem like a point that, well, yeah, I'm pushing the text a little bit here, but let me show you something. Our second part of our text here is the covenant that is promised or the covenant that is foretold. But if we go to the end of our story again and we look right before we get to the very end of the story with the corruption of Noah and his sons, we come to the penultimate act of the story, and that is in chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants. In verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I am making between me and you. Verse 13, I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures. Verse 16, I will see the rainbow and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures. Verse 17, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant. So what we see here is at the very end of our story, in parallel again, we have the covenant coming into focus. Here God has not just promised it, but he's also established the covenant, this everlasting covenant with Noah, with his descendants, with the animals, with the earth. And so what, comes, what is starting to form here is a structure of the story of Noah. 
Not only do we have a set of bookends that is the corruption of the world and the corruption of Noah and his son, but now we have another set of bookends inside, a nested bookend that talks about the covenant, the covenant that God is promising and then the covenant that he establishes at the end, end of the story. So what is forming here is what is known as a chiastic structure. It's a structure where you have sets of parallels, the first and the last, the second and the penultimate, the third and the antepenultimate, and they come together in a V-shape or an X-shape that focuses our attention on the middle of the story, which is what is the central point of the story of Noah. But sometimes we, in a Western culture, we don't look at stories this way. We don't look at the parallelism, especially as nested parallelism. We tend to read things literally. We like points, point one, point two, point three, or introduction, point one, point two, point three, conclusion. And we don't see parallels this way. And so in the Hebrew thought and in the Hebrew culture, this is a common form of, being a, of presenting a message to an oral society in a way that makes it memorable and it makes it easy to tell the story. Because if you can remember half the story, you can remember the other half. You just have to tell it backwards. And so this is a structure that helps us focus on what Moses had as an intention of this story by finding the center. So let's look and see what other parallels we can find. Let's go back to chapter 6 and let's look at our third act. Our third act begins in chapter 6, verse 19 where God instructs Noah that he is to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of creature that moves along the ground, you will, you will come, they will come to you and you will be, keep them alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and food for them. Now in this little passage here, we see that there's two words that are in focus the keeping alive of the animals, and the provision, the food that they will need during the trip on the ark or during the time that they're on the ark, not only for themselves, but also for the animals. It's very interesting to remember that back when God created Adam, he gave Adam charge over the animals. He gave Adam charge over the earth. It was the responsibility of Adam to care for the earth, to cultivate it, and to care for the animals, to care for all that God had created. God made Adam a regent of his. He was a representative of God on the earth to care for the earth. And here we see that even though God is bringing destruction upon the earth and is destroying wickedness, that there is a sanctity of life and there is a value in life. And God is showing to Noah that this life is still Noah's responsibility to keep alive. And so while the wickedness of mankind is being destroyed, God is not indiscriminately killing off all life. And he brings the animals to Noah. And so we see the sanctity of life and the necessity of provision that God is giving to Noah here during, for the period when they're going to be on the ark. And this has its parallel again at the end of our story. So if we go back to chapter 9, verse 1, when they're coming out of the ark, God tells them to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And look down there in verse 3 where it says, Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants prior to entering into the ark, now I give you everything. So God had given provision for Adam up through the time of the flood to be food for them in all the green plants. But now God expands that and now they can actually eat the animals. So God has given provision for Noah in the first part 
for while he was on the ark, and now he's giving provision for them of food for after they've come out of the ark. So we see the provision again. But not only that, we also see the sanctity of life. For if you go down to verse 4, it says, But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, that is the blood of humans, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. There's a sanctity of life that must be honored because life came from God. And we see that in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. While it is the prerogative of God to destroy the wicked, God is the creator and that's what gives him the prerogative. But as human agents, we do not have that prerogative. And so we must maintain the sanctity of life and we will be held accountable for that. And so God makes that very clear. So we see in our third movement here, the focus on the sanctity of life and the provision of God for the substance of man and the animals. The fourth act, we come to the fourth act in chapter 7, we see the instruction of God to Noah for him to enter into the ark. Verse 1, the Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family. And then in verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him, he went into the ark. And God had told him in verse 4, seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he repeats it again, verse 10. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth, and, and verse 12, and the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So in this fourth movement here, we see Noah entering into the ark. We see the seven days that he waited inside of the ark for the floodwaters to begin. And then we have 40 days of the flood. Okay, so there we have it. He gets into the ark. We've got this time. Flood takes place. But we also have a parallel of this on the other end. So go over to chapter 8, um, verse 6. And here we have it in reverse order. After 40 days, Noah opened the windows he had made in the ark, and he sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth and never had a place to land, so it came back. So he waited, verse 10, seven more days, and again sent out a dove from the ark. And when the dove returned to him in the evening, in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days. So what we had was Noah waiting in the first part, seven days, and then 40 days for the flood. Now he's waited 40 days and seven more and seven more days. And then after this, what do we expect that's going to happen? Verse 13, then God said to Noah, come out of the ark. You and your wife and your sons and their wives. And what happened? Noah obeyed. Verse 18, so Noah came out together with his sons and his wives and his sons' wives. So we have the perfect parallel again. Noah goes into the ark, waits seven days, waits 40 days while it rains. Now we've got him waiting 40 days, waiting seven days, waiting seven days, and then coming out of the ark. So we just have a complete reverse of what happened in the first part. This continues with our next section. So if we go to the next section, which is our fifth section, we see that the waters, in verse 17, increased. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered, and the waters rose and covered the mountains. And then in conclusion, in verse 24, and the waters flooded the earth for how long? 150 days. So we see that the floodwaters rose, and this took place over a period of 150 days. 
And this also has its parallel in chapter 8. In the second half of verse 1, it says, God sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of heaven had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky and the water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. Verse 5, the waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So we saw the waters rising for 150 days, covering over the tops of the mountains. And in the parallel here, we see the waters are receding. They're abating. And for 150 days, the water goes down. Now, if this has bored you, it gets exciting now. Because what we have found is parallel structures that bring us down to the very center of the story of Noah and the ark. And the very center is the focus of this story. And this is where it gets really cool. Because what do we have in verse 8, ver, ver, chapter 8, verse 1? God remembered Noah. That's the important thing. All the other things are peripheral around the center focus, which is that God remembered Noah. And this is what Moses wanted to tell the Israelites. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. He wrote all of these stories about God so that the Israelites would know the God that they are following, to know the God that they are serving. And the God that the Israelites are following is the God that remembered Noah. It doesn't say here that God remembered Noah because he was righteous. It doesn't say that God remembered Noah because he was obedient, both of which are true. But God remembered Noah because God is a God who remembers. The God of the Israelites is not a God that forgets. He is a God that remembers. And so for the Israelites, this would be an important message for them because the story of Noah is a story that is paralleled in the Israelites. Just as Noah was taken out of a wicked world where every thought was on wickedness and was, uh, was corrupt, were the Israelites not in a wicked Egypt, so much so that they cried out to God and God heard their cries. And so he sent Moses, their deliverer, to bring them out of Egypt where they were slaves. So as the Israelites would read this story and see that Noah was called out of wickedness, so they too as Israelites were called out of Egypt by God. God had chosen them just as God had chosen Noah to save them out of that wickedness. And just as God had chosen them to come out or chosen Noah to come out and provided a means of escape, so God also provided a means of escape, a means of salvation for his people, the Israelites, as they came out of Israel. So Noah, you read in his story, that he had a long time that he built this ark. And what did he do during this whole time that he built the ark? We read in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that Noah preached. Noah was the one who gave warning to the wicked people of that day. And an offer was made for them, too, to come on the ark. It was not, we're going to build the ark, and the doors are closed, and nobody can get in. If you, too, will leave your wickedness, you can join us on the ark. You can come, too, to the ark. So Noah, the evangelist, preached all the time through his actions of building the ark and his trust in God, as well as through his words to the people. It wasn't not the same with the Israelites, who, 
during the time of the preparation for the last plague, did they not also reach out to the Egyptians and say, if you want to be saved from the angel of death, come into our homes, put the blood over the doorposts, put the blood over the doorposts of your homes, and the angel of death will pass by, and you too will be saved. God is a God who judges the wicked, but God is also a God who calls people from wickedness to salvation and provides a means of escape for all who will come to him. And so just like, the, just like in the days of Noah, when an invitation was made to come into the ark, though no one accepted it, in the days of Israel, an invitation was made to the Egyptians, come with us, leave Egypt, leave its false practices, come worship the true and only God, put the blood on your doorposts, you too will be saved. And some Egyptians actually did that and actually were saved out. And just as Noah was brought through the floodwaters, and protected from that flood that destroyed the wickedness, God protected the Israelites and did not allow their children to be killed with the angel of death, nor when they came through the Red Sea were they killed. But the floodwaters of the Red Sea came back on the Egyptian army. And so just as the waters of Noah wiped out that wicked and evil generation, the angel of death and the parting and closing of the Red Sea was a means of salvation for the Israelites and a means of death for those who were wicked that tried to pursue God's people. And so now where are the Israelites? They're in the desert. They've made it halfway through the story. They haven't made it to the promised land yet. And what does God do with the Israelites in the desert? God establishes his covenant with the Israelites. Just as God had established his covenant with Noah, God now establishes a covenant with the Israelites. And he makes promises to them. If you will follow my ways and walk in my ways and obey my commandments, then I will bless you. And I will bless you in this land I am taking you to. And I will give you abundance. I will give you peace. I will make you victorious over your enemies. Your children will be bountiful. Your crops and your livestock will be bountiful. And so he makes this covenant with the Israelites just as he made with Noah. And just as the Israelites could look to the rainbow, the everlasting covenant, the sign of that, that God had given to Noah, the Israelites had their covenant, but it wasn't complete yet. And so it was important for the Israelites to know that God remembered Noah to know that God had not forgotten them because they hadn't yet made it to the promised land. They had been saved out of Egypt. They had been given safe passage into the desert, but they weren't there yet. And it was also important to remember that as God had provided provision of food for Noah during his time in the ark and provision for food after he began his new life, so God would provide provision for them. And they had been given the provision in the manna that came down from heaven every day. And so here God is repeating the things that he had done with Noah. He's repeating it in the life of the Israelites. And so through all of this, this message that God remembered Noah for the Israelites was something to hang on to until they could get to the promised land because their flood had not yet seen the waters abating. But is it just for the Israelites that this story applies? No, this story applies to us as well. Because just as Noah lived in a wicked world and just as the Israelites were in the wickedness of Egypt, so we live in a wicked world that for the most part does not honor nor serve nor seek to serve God. And just as Noah was called out of that world and just as the Israelites were called out of that world, so today God calls his church 
out of a wicked world, out of a world where sin reigns, out of a world where people give in to temptations, out of a world of wickedness and self-serving, self-centeredness, to come into his kingdom and to be a part of his kingdom. And not only did God provide a means of an ark for Noah to come out of that wickedness and into his promise, and not only did God provide a means for the Israelites to pass out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the desert and eventually into the promised land, but God also provides Jesus Christ as the means by which we are going to come out of the wickedness and come into his kingdom and move on to the future that he has for us. And so there is a clear parallel between Noah, between the Israelites, and between God, in, with God's church today and for us. And just as salvation in the time of Noah was preached to everyone, and just as salvation was preached to all the Egyptians in the time of the Israelites, so salvation today is preached to all people. It needs to be preached to all people by his church because God continues to call all people out of wickedness. God continues to call all people out of corruption, to call all people from sin and to repent of sin and to come to righteousness in Jesus Christ. And even as God gave provision for Noah in the time of his transition, and even as God gave provision of food for the Israelites as they walked through the desert, God gives us provision. He says in Matthew 6, Seek me first, and all these things, food and clothes, and all the things we physically need, will be given unto us. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to give us victory over sin, to give us victory over temptation, to comfort us, to walk with us, to remind us of his words. And so we have the provision that is needed to live a righteous and holy life before God right now. And so God's means of provision has changed, but it is still there. God gives us all the provisions we need. And just as God established his covenant with Noah, and just as God established his covenant with Israel, God has established his new covenant with the church, which is a better covenant, which is a more fulfilling covenant, because not only does it give us direction, but it also gives us the means by which we can obey God. And so we are called, just like Noah was, just like the Israelites, we are called today to come to Jesus Christ through faith in him, out of the wickedness of this world, and into the life that he has given us, and into the promises that we have before us. And so just as Noah had the promise of a new life to start over again, to be fruitful and to multiply on a new earth where the wicked had passed away, and just like the Israelites who were called out of the wickedness to go to a promised land where God promised that he would annihilate the wickedness of that land and bring them into that land so that they could have their homes and their lives and be a part of the theocratic kingdom that God was establishing with him at the center in the midst of the, his people in Israel, so God has called his church to a home that is not on this earth, but to a celestial home that one day he will establish and he will bring down Jerusalem from heaven onto this earth where we will be established as his people and we will have God in our midst and God in our presence and he will dry all of our tears and he will comfort our hearts and he will give us all the things we need because we will be forever and eternally in his presence. What do we need to remember today? That God remembered Noah, that God remembered Israel, and that God remembers his church. God remembers you and he remembers me. He has not forgotten us. And so you may face difficulties. You may face hard times. Probably not the bobbing up and down on the waters that Noah faced. Probably not wandering for 40 years in the desert. But your marriage may not be the way you wanted it to be. And you may have some difficult things that you have to face in your marriage. Your children may not be behaving the way you would like them to behave. And you may have to deal with those issues. You may be persecuted or not honored the way you should be honored because you live in a wicked world that does not honor those who seek the Lord.
You may have health issues. You may have financial issues. Our problems are innumerable. But God remembers his church. And just as the Israelites had to walk for 40 years in the desert, and just like Noah had to bob around in the waters, taking care of smelly animals for a year and a bit, we are going to have to walk through the world that we are in as sojourners until we come into his holy presence at the end of our lives. God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten his church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who remembers. You are a God who remembers your people, and you are a God who remembers us, your church. Thank you for giving us the provision we need to live and to walk in the holiness that you have called us to walk into until that day in which we enjoy the fullness of your holiness in your presence for all of eternity. Help us to be faithful day by day as we sojourn in this world that is not our own. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.